Amen. Amen. You can be seated. It's good to have them back, isn't it? Good to have them leading us in worship. And we're so thankful for so many of our volunteers, for all of our volunteers, not just those on the worship team, those serving in tech. And if you didn't know, we have our nursery back, our what we're calling now kids care for uh, zero to pre-K. And so we're excited about having that back starting today and very excited about uh, those incredible volunteers that are back there now serving uh, the children of those that are visiting and those in our church. So, so thankful. We're going to continue in our series called The Keys of the Kingdom. And we're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. The Word of God says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the Word of God. Again, we're back in a sermon series all about the local church. I try to take at least a couple Sundays out of the year to talk about the importance of what exactly we're doing here, right? What exactly the local church is about. And last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus speaks about these keys. And he speaks about his establishing of the church and giving them the keys of the kingdom. And we saw that the keys came from the world of the rabbis, where the rabbis had the keys and they could establish the standards within their communities by binding and loosing them to particular rules and expectations. We illustrated this by having us think about our own U.S. government. We have a branch that makes laws, and then we have a separate branch that interprets and applies those laws. And in our setting here, Jesus is the king. He has given us our constitution called the Bible, right? But, the, but those who hold the keys to read and interpret it and apply it, that's been given to the local church in our, to, to do that for our particular community of faith. The membership of the local church really is the Supreme Court interpreting and applying the Word of God in our particular community to bind and loose, to make our church reflect heaven as much as possible. If you were to read the grammar, there's really only one translation that really gets good at the grammar of Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. And the best way to put it, it's terrible grammar, but it's great theology, is what you have bound on heaven shall have already been bound, or what you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. It's, again, really awkward Really awkward grammar, but he's telling us that our church should seek to reflect heaven on earth as much as possible. And here he's telling us that the local church is not a religious country club. And membership in it is not like having a membership at Sam's Club or at the Planet Fitness. But that the local church and its members have been given authority and responsibility by God. And this is seen in giving us the keys to the kingdom. And we saw last week four things that the keys enabled us to do, right? To protect, to preserve, to purify, and to proclaim. That the keys give the local church authority to protect by guarding the door. 
When we admit members into our body, we do so as a body. And we make affirmation that they share a mutual confession of the person and work of Jesus. We preserve the church by guarding its doctrine. That's one of the reasons the church is the one who calls the pastor, right? The primary teacher and preacher in their congregation in order to protect the doctrine of the church and keep false ideas of what it means to follow Jesus from influencing our body. The keys enable us and give us the authority to purify the church by correcting false ideas and false ways of living that inevitably creep into the body, and we proclaim the truth of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so now, this week, we're going to take the next step and look at how Jesus and his Spirit-inspired apostles applied and understood these keys. And one of the ways these keys are used is through what's called the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, you may come from a tradition that called baptism and the Lord's Supper sacraments, right? Or these holy things, these holy mysteries that that distribute grace to the user. Some will use the term ordinance, which is one that I prefer because it puts the the emphasis not on what they may or may not do, but on who has told us to do them, who has ordained them for us to do them. And here is the ultimate point regardless of what you call them. Here's the point of this morning's message and what we need to see. We see that Jesus gave baptism and the Lord's Supper to the local church to bind and loose in the kingdom of God. I know that's four blanks, right? Jesus gave baptism and the Lord's Supper to the local church to bind and loose in the kingdom of God. The keys are the authority to administer the ordinances, to use and practice baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are what make a church a church. Once you start baptizing people and taking the Lord's Supper, that's the moment your small group or Christian camp or concert becomes a church. The Protestant reformers put it this way, that the marks of a true church are the right preaching of the word and the right practice of the ordinances. Once you get preaching of God's word and you start having baptism in the Lord's Supper, whatever it is, it starts to become a church. Because where the ordinances are, the keys are. Because the ordinances are the primary way the church protects, preserves, purifies, and proclaims. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Sadly, in our day, there's been a temptation to place the emphasis on an individual experience when we practice the Lord's Supper and when we do baptism, rather than the communal elements. These are acts of the church and acts of the keys. And so this morning, we're going to consider baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do it through the four Ps that I mentioned, through protecting, preserving, purifying, and proclaiming. Let's start with baptism and the keys. Let's start with thinking about baptism together. And we see this, that baptism protects because it connects confession and community. Did you know that every time we do baptism, if we're doing it properly, it's actually something that's meant to protect our church? 
In other words, friends, he says that it connects confession and community. The church baptizes those who share the central confession of the church. The church is meant to baptize followers of Jesus. Now, that might sound really simple and obvious, but this has not always been the case historically, and it's still not the case today. In the history of the church, there are actually two perspectives on baptism. There are what's called paedo-baptism, right? Or it kind of looks like from the word pediatrician, they would baptize infants into the body. And then there's a perspective called credo-baptism. Credo meaning belief or confession. And the New Testament, friends, I have yet to find a baby being baptized anywhere in it, and I've read it cover to cover quite a bit, right? The Bible teaches that those who confess faith in Christ are the ones that ought to be baptized and that baptism is the gateway into the local church and it's sort of the shotgun for the marathon of the Christian life. Let me show you a few verses that show us that. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. In verse 5 and 6, we've got John the Baptist and we see this. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Notice baptism in connection with confessing their sins. Jesus ends the Gospel of Matthew with the Great Commission, which is what we're going to look at more next week, but notice what he says there. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He says disciples, followers, believers are the proper recipients of baptism. And then you go on and you look through the book of Acts, and every single case of baptism is preceded by somebody believing and calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism connects confession and community, and baptism is the initiation ceremony into the family of faith. And it's important that we make sure that those who we baptize confess the gospel. Infant baptism inherently confuses church and confession because you bring in children into the membership of the body and you have them grow up and they don't ever have to make a confession. No wonder we see so many sort of so many churches that practice infant baptism are just in a mess, right? They never want to make they don't make sure that those who join their body confess Christ and his gospel. But friends, there's a temptation. We can pick on the infant baptizing churches all we want, but there's a temptation in our own world, in Credo Baptist churches, to cheapen what a confession of faith means. Let me tell you this, and this is probably a little unpopular, but the most unloving thing we can do is to be too quick to baptize. The most unloving thing we can do is to misuse the keys by baptizing apart from an explicit confession of faith. And I see it all the time. Somebody raises their hand in response to a prayer. Let's get them dunked as fast as they can. Somebody responds well to, to the, maybe they're even interested in baptism, or they even just claim to be a Christian. But friends, baptism is the way we as a church sort of stamp a heavenly passport. 
and affirm their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We don't make them citizens. Jesus does that. But we do go, hey, we see that you're confessing the gospel that saves, and we're going to put our stamp of approval on that. And apart from an explicit confession of the person and work of Christ, we should not baptize anyone. And if you were not baptized following a confession in the person and work of Christ, then hear me and hear me in love. You've not been baptized. And the Bible would call you to come and to follow him and to follow Jesus' example and to be baptized. And we as a church are so quick to give a stamp of approval to try to give a pass to people who may not actually know Jesus. Maybe we do it because we want to feel better about the state of their souls. Maybe we think, well, if I just get them dunked, then they're all good. But friends, we believe that salvation is by the grace of God alone, not by them taking a bath. We set them up for failure when we baptize them too soon, and then we're surprised when they walk away, or when they have a final come, and when they actually have a come to Jesus moment, and they're getting baptized the first time later in life. That's not to say we're always going to know someone's heart, but we can at least seek for clarity and accuracy in their confession of faith. It is not a loving thing to do to baptize somebody apart from them understanding and being able to articulate to you the person and work of Jesus. And friends, I will never encourage us to do that. Friends, you can lead the county in baptisms and by doing so be offering false assurance to people who really don't know him. They can go and dunk them through the water, but all you do is give them a bath and a public ceremony that's empty of meaning and value and, friends, makes them feel better about themselves on the way to hell. It's true, I've seen it as a pastor. I grew up with people who were in youth groups and got baptized and friends there, and they'll tell you now, they're like, I never really knew what I was doing. I did it for mama. I did it because granddaddy wanted me to. I did it because everybody else wanted me to. I didn't do it because I really understood what I was doing. So we must be careful how we use the keys and how we administer baptism. Baptism is meant to connect a confession of faith and a community of faith. And that also means that baptism and church membership are intricately connected. The church baptizes and believers are baptized into a church. This leads us to point two, that baptism preserves because it defines the membership. It protects because it's meant to connect people who believe the gospel with the community of the gospel. And it preserves because it defines what it means to be a member and a part of a local church. Baptism unites us to the body of Christ. You hear me? It doesn't unite us to Christ. Faith does that. But it does unite us to the people of God. It it doesn't justify us before God as if, if somebody were to meet Jesus. The thief on the cross did not have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. But friends, but you're not the thief on the cross. And Jesus does call us to live a life of obedience in a community of faith. And baptism is the way we do that. To connect ourselves as a response to Jesus saving us to a community of faith. Baptism declares, not determines, 
our relationship to Jesus, and it unites us to a church body. I want to see the clearest example of this. Let me have you consider Jesus' baptism. Let me show you this. This is in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. I love this. We see Jesus getting baptized, and it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Friends, if it's good enough for Jesus to be immersed, it should be good enough for us, right? And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Notice, Jesus' baptism teaches us that baptism is by nature a declaration and not a determination. Jesus didn't, the baptism didn't make Jesus something he wasn't before, but rather it declared to the world who he already was. And so in the same way, when someone is baptized, it's not making them a child of God, but it is declaring that reality to the world. Just as, friends, the wedding ceremony really doesn't necessarily make you married, but it does declare that reality to other people around you for witnesses who will hold you accountable to the commitments that you made. When Jesus is baptized, all three persons of the Trinity at work, right? He's in the water. The Spirit is descending. The Father is speaking a declaration of who he was. And when we are baptized, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, declaring to the world that that person belongs to the triune God, that they are his. And declarations need witnesses. At least most of the time, you would want a declaration to have witnesses. In fact, declarations really need to be seen and recognized. That's why we have witnesses at a wedding, not just so they can get all dressed up and be in the wedding party, right? And Jesus even has witnesses at his baptism to hear this declaration. And so when we are baptized, the one being baptized is declared to the world, that, is declaring to the world that they are a disciple of Jesus, and we as the church are witnessing and affirming and recognizing that declaration. Friends, baptism doesn't have to be done in a church building, but it is normally done into a community of faith. This is why, friends, to say that a little tongue-in-cheek, you can't just, when you become a believer, just get in your bathtub and baptize yourself, right? There's got to be other people around to affirm this, to see this, to recognize this. Let me show you a few passages in the Bible about this. Right on the heels of Peter, the rock, right, being empowered by the Spirit, the day of Pentecost, he preaches the first Christian sermon, 3,000 people are saved, Pentecost is considered the birthday of the church, and this is what happens, Acts 2, 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They believed, were baptized. Baptism is then connected to adding to their number. There's church membership. Then they gathered with them for worship, teaching, and the breaking of bread. We see sort of a general pattern, right? Baptism comes first, then church membership, then the Lord's Supper. They were united with Christ by faith, and they were united to one another through baptism. That's why the proper place to get baptized is not in the Jordan River on a trip to Israel. 
Friends, the proper place to get baptized isn't in a private ceremony on a lake or at a summer camp, but it's ultimately meant to be done with your church family there to affirm what's going on and to be witnesses of the oaths and the promises that you're making to follow Jesus when you are baptized. Paul speaks this way about the local church, Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see it? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Baptism is connected to the confession of faith and with the community of faith. The membership of the church is defined by baptism, meaning, friends, if baptism were gone, the membership of the church would be gone. And baptism begins the journey of faith and begins our walk and our journey with another group of people. It's sort of like the initiation to put on the jersey and join the team. And that's what we see with point three about baptism, that baptism purifies because it signs us up for accountability. When there are witnesses to hear the vows you make at your wedding, they'll remind you of them. When things get hard, when life gets difficult, when you want to quit, they'll go, well, I thought you promised to love them in sickness and in health, in riches and in poverty, through it all. And I thought in the baptismal waters, you promised you would follow Jesus all the days of your life. And so we call them to remember their baptism. There simply wasn't a category in Paul's mind for a, church, for a Christian who was not a member of a church and was not baptized. That just wasn't, when people go, well, can you find me a verse about that? That would have been unheard of for them to even think about. All the commands of the New Testament are given to believers who are members of local churches. Do you know that there's a whole bunch of letters Paul wrote? Galatians, Philippians, Colossians. And did you know all of those were churches who, where people had been baptized and joined and had membership? That's the context he's writing to. And it was assumed because they would have never assumed otherwise. Just consider how the Apostle Paul, he speaks to the Romans with such frankness about baptism because he just couldn't have thought of otherwise somebody being a part of a body and not eventually being baptized and joining into that body. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says baptism is declaring that we died with Christ and we've risen again, and it's the church recognition of that newness of life. And when we are baptized, we're signing up to a community of faith and saying, hey, will you help me walk in this newness? Will you help me walk out this vision? That's why the scripture gives us these one another commands, to pray for one another, to build one another up, to restore one another. Baptism shows us who we are responsible to and who we are responsible for. And baptism is meant to be remembered and pointed to when life gets hard. When was the last time you remembered your baptism? If it's an infant, you can't. When was the last time you remembered your baptism? Friends, it can be hard sometimes 
to discern the moment when like, well, did I trust in Christ here? Did I really trust in Christ the next day? I mean, I hit my brother after I trusted in Christ then, so was it really here? But you know what's a moment you can really solidify yourself in? Friends, when I went under the water, I was trusting in Jesus. Friends, it can be hard to discern our own hearts, but it's a lot easier to remember when you went in the water and came back out. And so, friends, we should encourage one another and remember our baptism and remember the commitments we were made there and encourage one another in those. To encourage one another to walk out what that baptism means because baptism sends a message. And that's the fourth thing we see about it is that baptism proclaims our union with Christ and the church. Did you know every time we have baptism here, and any time a baptism is performed, it is a sermon. It's a sermon preached before the whole church body. This is what it means to follow Jesus and to experience the grace of God, death and newness of life. And it's required, if we're going to do that, that we know one another, that we know that that really is their story, that that really is the life that they have lived and that they've really experienced the grace of God. That's why we, as, as a leadership, do interviews here with those who want to be baptized and make sure, hey, can we hear your testimony? Can we know kind of how you came to know Jesus and what it means to follow him? But that's also why we have people share their testimony from the water for everyone to hear that, hey, this is how they came to know Jesus because baptism is not primarily about us but about Jesus and about the church using the keys to affirm others' confession of Jesus. And friends, there are times people have requested to be baptized here that I'll tell you, we do not always say yes. The most common answer we get is more, let's wait. Let's wait and make sure before we put the stamp on it. Let's make sure that they know and understand who Jesus is and what it means to walk with him. And this is why we often tell folks, go read the Gospel of John, because John is written that you may believe, and it can kind of sure up some things. And if they don't necessarily have the understanding that John brings, then I'm not sure they're quite ready to sign on and follow him. The church uses the keys of the kingdom by baptizing people into the body. None of us would have problems with premarital counseling, but friends, sometimes people would have problems with pre-baptismal counseling. But baptism is till death do us part. Your relationship with Jesus is an eternal matter. We must make sure, because there are so many people that think, I've been dunked, I'm good. Jesus even says, what we bind on earth should reflect what's already bound in heaven. We should seek for our body to reflect what is true as much as possible. And we can't do that by baptizing people who don't know Jesus. And we don't simply use the keys when we baptize. There's another piece to it, right? Every time we gather and take the Lord's Supper, we, just as we're going to do this morning, we use the keys as well. So let's consider, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, four things about the Lord's Supper and the keys. These points should start to sound familiar, I hope. Because the Lord's Supper protects, because it defines a church. The Lord's Supper protects because it defines a church. Have you ever thought about what separates a Bible study, a Christian concert, and a church? Have you ever thought about maybe the point on a mission field when a gathering of believers truly becomes an established church? 
is at the moment they have elders and leadership. Because if that's required to make it a church, then friends, if I die, this church goes away. And we all know that's not true, because the church is the people, not the leaders, right? That wouldn't be right. Is it once they begin to meet regularly? I mean, friends, we meet here, and then after this, several of us will probably meet at Bambino's or Cracker Barrel. Is that going to another church? Friends, is it the moment we get the three B's? You've heard me talk about the three B's before, right? Brand, budget, butts in the seats. Is that the moment it becomes a church once they have a cool name and they got a budget and they got a place to meet? Because, friends, movie theaters have all of those. And that isn't a church. What makes a church a church is the Lord's Supper. Jesus seems to indicate this as he's celebrating the Last Supper in the upper room and one disciple has departed to, to, to betray him. And Jesus says this, Matthew 15, or John chapter 15, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. At the Last Supper, Jesus lifts up the one bread and the one cup, and he brought together a community of friends and followers, a picture of the church. And it's super interesting that the, after Jesus has ascended, the church is together in that same upper room when the Spirit fell on Pentecost. They were in that same place seeking God's face in prayer. It's the supper that brought them together to be more than just a gathering, but to be a church. Paul repeats this and actually makes it explicit. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation or a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of that one bread. Did you notice that last part? What makes us one body? It's because we eat the one bread together. It's because we have fellowship together in it. It's the communion we have with one another and with Jesus as we feast. That's why we call it communion. The Lord's Supper protects the church because it defines the church. No baptism and no supper? Sorry, friends. It might be a good thing, but it ain't a church. The Lord's Supper protects us. And second, we see that the Lord's Supper preserves because it reaffirms our commitment. The, local, the Lord's Supper is intrinsically focused on us as a community. See, baptism is a one-time act, but the Lord's Supper is meant to be done regularly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes an extensive treatment on the supper, and he starts by reminding us that the supper is a fundamental part of our, our ongoing commitment to one another. Let me show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. He says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Notice he repeats, when you come together, not if, but when. Gathering is not an option. God's people get together. 
And he says, when you do, we should not be divided with sinful hearts or with selfish relationships, but come united as a family. And Paul says he's not against all factions because, as we saw last week, you've got to have membership in order to have visitors or else we're all just visitors, right? We've got to be able to recognize who's truly genuine among us and who's a part of the family and who's visiting. And the supper is the way that we reaffirm our commitment to Christ and our commitment to one another. It reaffirms all the same things that we declare in baptism. The supper is both vertical, our commitment to God, and it's horizontal, our commitment to one another. And if we're divided against one another, we need to get right before we come to the table. And once we are right, then we are free to partake together. And this can often require hard conversations. This brings us to the third point. The Lord's Supper purifies because it is a means of discipline. It purifies because it is a means of discipline. Paul would follow Jesus' example. Not everyone gets to the supper. Did you ever notice that? If you're reading John chapter 13, yes, Jesus washes Judas' feet, but then he gives him a little snack, and Judas leaves. And then the rest of what's going on in the upper room, Judas ain't there. So Paul says the same, that unbelievers or those under the discipline of the church should not partake of the supper. Notice 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Baptism, again, is a one-time initial affirmation of faith. The Lord's Supper is a way we regularly affirm one another that, hey, you are confessing Christ and you are following Christ faithfully. It's a regular reminder and a regular confession that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. It's meant to be an act of the church. And when we come to take the supper, he says we must discern the body. And now, I don't think discern the body means you've got to look at the bread and understand all the intricacies of the bread, because if it was about discerning the actual bread, he would have said discern the cup too. <laughs> but rather, he says we should discern ourselves and others when we come to the table. Make sure that we are taking it with a right heart, but that we're taking the supper with other believers, having discerned ourselves and the body. And Paul warns that if you take the supper without discerning your own heart and the hearts of those who we commune with, then he says we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. It's a pretty big deal. The Lord's Supper, every time it is celebrated, is an act of the keys because through it the church discerns among ourselves who is a follower of Christ and who is not. This is why before the supper, we say, hey, this is open to believers in Jesus. That doesn't mean we're going to run and tackle you if you're not a Christian and you try to take it, right? But it is a warning that, hey, it doesn't have the same meaning when you're not a Christian and you take this. And specifically, I'll often say, hey, this is open to baptized believers because the Lord's Supper is connected with the local church and with faithfully following Jesus. And then discerning the body means they may, they may come times where we ask someone to not take the supper. 
maybe due to ongoing conflict or division or due to unrepentant sin. You know, there's an unpopular word where people talk about excommunication, right? But if you actually look at that word, it literally says excommunication. In other words, friends, we're asking them to go, hey, we cannot affirm the life that you're living and you're walking in unrepentance. And so, hey, we would ask you not to take the supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see an example of this with a man who was deep in unrepentant sin. Matthew chapter 18 speaks of the last step of church discipline, and he says, treat him as a tax collector and as a sinner. None of that is ever done as an act of punishment, but out of love for them and concern for their souls because they are living and believing contrary to the faith of Jesus, and they remain obstinate and without repentance. We can no longer affirm their confession of faith, and thus the supper isn't for them. When we fence the table, offering the supper only to baptize followers of Jesus, it's an act of the keys. And let me say, there are certain people that get very, very excited about what's called church discipline, and those folks are a little weird, to be honest with you. I don't know why we get so excited about excluding other people or having hard conversations with other people because this isn't something that should happen often. It's not something we should be doing regularly because if the front door of the church is, is done in the right way, you shouldn't have a massive back door. Church discipline isn't something that should be a pet issue, but it is something that might be a last resort when necessary. But those who are not, for those who are not followers of Christ, the supper is meant to be observed as a second sermon in picture form and as an invitation to feast on Christ with us through faith. But it's not to be shared with those who do not share our Christ. When the church gathers and we take the supper, we bind and loose. The supper is what, take, is what took a ragtag team of disciples and transformed them into a family of faith. It reaffirms our commitment to one another, and it sends a message to the world. It's the last thing that we need to see, that the Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel until he comes. Look back, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here it is. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the supper, we are proclaiming what Jesus has done. And for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. And the supper is for you, not to partake and eat, but to observe, to sit and hear a second proclamation of the news that Jesus has died for sinners and risen again to bring us salvation. For those who do believe that and are following him, By eating and drinking, we visually feast on the promises of God and consume the gospel through faith. And it's what it means to mark out who has the keys. So as we prepare to take the supper together, let me just ask this. How are we using the keys? Are we aware of those around us and their confessions of faith? Are we aware that this is something that we're doing together as a family? 
And are we aware of the body and have we discerned it? Today, if you need to meet Jesus for the first time, he stands ready to receive you, to forgive you of your sins and to meet you right where you are because he died to pay the penalty for every sin you've ever committed and he's risen again so that through repentance and faith you can have new life in him. And today, if you believe that and you're following after him, friends, the table stands open. May we come to the supper hearing Jesus' invitation to come, take the keys, and bind and loose. Let's prepare our hearts, church, and pray together as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Father God, we know that talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper may not be, may not seem to be the most applicable message, may not seem to be the most important thing going on in this world, but friends, there's nothing more important than the local church that you established and the keys that you have given us. There's nothing more important than us thinking about what it means to follow you. And there's nothing more important than thinking about the people we will do life with. You didn't just call us to be saved individually and you didn't just take us straight to heaven when we met you. But you called us to gather together with a family, to take of bread and the cup that we might affirm one another, challenge one another, strengthen one another, and commit to walk beside one another. And so, Lord, as we take this meal, we realize that it is but a shadow of the feast we will take with you when you return. So today, may we come with right hearts, having discerned the body, and knowing that you have established your church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to save us, yes, both individually for all eternity, but to save a people for himself. And we are an expression of that kingdom here together. And in taking this, we're committing to, yes, to Jesus, to continue to follow him, but to one another, to follow him together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul would remind us of this, For I received from the Lord, but also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We all can get in of Jesus' salvation. And it's not because any of us are better because any of us have gone through certain ceremonies, but it's through and faith alone in him. And we go out today with that message to share, empowered by this benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.